0: One of the biggest surprises that we ever got when we were examining the universe is that there were black holes out there, not just the types of black holes that form when stars go supernovae or collapse into black holes, but supermassive ones. Black holes that are millions or even billions of times as massive as our sun is. These supermassive black holes are found throughout the universe at the centers and cores of almost every spiral and elliptical galaxy we've ever examined. One of the surprises about these black holes is we don't know how they got to be so massive as fast and early in the universe as we see them both today and early on. Want to learn more about them? We'll find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. When we want to study objects in the universe, we don't just look at them with the tools we have. We design specific special tools that teach us about them. What are their masses? What are their temperatures? What are the environments around them like? How do they evolve? How did they grow into what they are today? And how do their populations change over time? To help us investigate these questions and a whole lot more, I'm so pleased to welcome Kyle Cabasares onto the podcast. Kyle is an astronomer and a phd candidate at uc irvine and he studies supermassive black holes as his specialty kyle it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the show
1: it's uh, absolutely a pleasure to be on here Ethan thank you so much for having me
0: yeah it's uh it's no problem at all so you know when I first learned about supermassive black holes um it wasn't really a surprise that they were there but it was a surprise that you know you had some of these galaxies i guess that were that were active that were emitting radiation um, and it seemed like there was no way that this enormous amount of radiation could be caused by anything other than a supermassive black hole at the galaxy's center. Um, this was a surprise to me because when I first heard about it, I thought, but but I thought nothing could escape from a black hole. Uh, but that isn't a surprise to you, is it?
1: Uh, no, not, not entirely. Um, and I could go into why I think it's not that big of a surprise.
0: Yeah, I, I would love for you to tell us that.
1: Sure. So, uh, I guess when we think about black holes, I think one of the one of the first things we learn is we we learn about this event horizon, and how, like you said, nothing can escape if it if it falls within that that radius. And while that is true, uh, there are things that can still orbit outside of the event horizon or the source shield radius of a black hole. And so. Uh, for the galaxies that you were referring to, that uh, that are so bright and are emitting a lot of radiation, these are these are really active galaxies where they're just just causing such a gravitational tug on gas and stars in the nearby vicinity to speed up. And when things speed up, they can get really hot. And when they get really hot, they can emit different kinds of radiation that we can observe. And uh, you know that's uh, that's one of the most amazing things I think about black holes is that even though we think of them as being these 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 vacuums of just sucking everything in, they can still emit such bright lights in the galaxy
0: yeah and i think that's fascinating because we think about black holes as being you know these these black objects that nothing can escape from them that they just they just suck everything that encounters the event horizon into them into their central singularities but they also don't exist in isolation and comparatively to the size of of a galaxy or the environment that we find them in uh, the event horizons of these black holes are actually relatively tiny you know a galaxy like the Milky Way is something like a hundred thousand light years across and I think even the biggest, Black hole event horizons that we found, like the the supermassive behemoths at the center of M eighty uh, seven, at the center of OJ two eight seven, um, you know, they might be billions or even tens of billions of solar masses, but their event horizons are still just about a light day across.
1: Yeah, and that is that is true. They're 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 fairly small structures you know, relative to the entire galaxy, and. When you're studying the the you know, the supermassive black holes and trying to understand how much, you know, mass they possess, you don't really think about scales that small because those scales are just so tiny in comparison to what we could actually observe on the sky. So even with the case of like the Milky Way where its black hole is about four million solar masses, uh, we don't have the technology to look that deep within the gravitational influence of the black hole. We can't see, we can't get down uh, to that scale of the event horizon uh, just due to the
0: fact that we're we're limited by the, the sizes of telescopes we can build. If I remember right, about about 20 years ago, uh, we first gained the ability uh, and this was this was, I think, in the 1990s. There were teams that were able to use uh, infrared and uh, I guess submillimeter um, wavelengths uh, to finally see through the galactic dust at high enough resolutions that they could actually start tracking stars in orbit. Around the central supermassive black hole. And that was that was an enormous development because, like you said, one of the goals of these of studying these supermassive black holes is to measure their mass. Um, and so that opened up this wonderful new possibility of saying, like, hey, well, we know how gravity works, and if we can watch these stars orbiting, the, a black hole, then then we can determine the mass of the black hole. That figure you gave of 4 million solar masses, um, you know, I, I think that's so thoroughly well established that that's the only figure anyone gives anymore. But before we had that data and before we had that figure of 4 million solar masses, um, we we had just an entirely different way of estimating the black hole's mass. And that was from, uh, like you sort of alluded to earlier, that was from radiation emitted uh, from material around the black hole instead. And that actually gave us a significantly lower mass than 4 million solar masses. I think the, the last figure I had heard before uh, we had discovered the 4 million figure was somewhere around two point five or two point seven million solar masses in that range. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how, when we don't have individual orbits of stars around the black hole, we can still use other observations to try and estimate the mass?
1: Yeah. So um, there are a number of techniques that you can you can try. Um, as you've alluded to, you can look at the radiation coming from material around the black hole. So um, I'm not particularly well-versed in all the techniques, but I do know, for example, if you want to look at an active galactic uh, nucleus and you want to... that it, that's very distant, that we can't typically resolve scale super close to the black hole, uh, one thing you can do is you can look at... Um, you can look at essentially the emission coming from... Gas or stars in the in the vicinity of that black hole, and so what's happening is that you can look at certain chemicals. There are certain chemicals that will emit either an absorption or, uh, an, sorry, will have either an, an absorption or an emission line that is something that we can we can definitively point to and say, oh, you know, this is this element, and you know, an electron is being ionized here or being captured here, and based on these emission or absorption lines, we can understand how fast the, the material is moving around the black hole. And so based on our understandings of Keplerian laws and Newtonian mechanics, we can use the speeds of the material um, around this black hole to, to get an estimate
0: of how massive that thing is. So that's that's kind of interesting because what you're saying is I can say okay I can't I can't measure the black hole directly and maybe I can't resolve stars directly either but if I can sort of look at okay I know there's material here and it's got to be moving around. Um, and then I go and I say, okay, you know what, I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to do spectroscopy. I'm going to break this light up into individual wavelengths. I can see that there are going to be these these dark features amidst the continuum light, and those features are going to correspond to atoms or ions or, you know, some configuration where I know there are electron transitions happening. And I can look at uh, these lines and I can identify okay, um, I can recognize this pattern of line as corresponding to this element. Uh, But what's also going to happen to these lines when they're moving around to and fro, or they're heated up to a certain temperature, um, or there's otherwise either kinetic or thermal motions to them, is I will see that line start to broaden. That line gets broader and broader, and that corresponds to, I believe, what we call velocity dispersion of the material that's in that gas so are you saying we can just look at these features whether it's an absorption line or an emission line and look at how broad that line gets and that tells us how fast that material is moving around whatever it's orbiting that's a that's a
1: very good uh, analysis you did there and the answer is yes so um, there are different kinds of broadening that you've mentioned there so Typically, when you have an emission or an absorption line, there is typically a central or a rest frequency that is, if you were just looking at the the transitioning happening in the rest frame of the object, it would peak at this particular frequency. But because of the different kinds of motions you've just mentioned, whether it's the relative motion of the, if, if the thing is rotating um, due to the, the gravitational potential of the black hole, you have what is known as Doppler broadening, you can also have, like you said, thermal broadening, just from the from the temperatures that this material is experiencing, and um, oh, I believe there's also collisional broadening as well as in where just if you have uh, these uh, materials colliding into each other, that's also going to cause broadening features to the line. And accounting for all these different kinds of processes is is challenging for sure. And if I'm doing this kind of analysis, which is actually what I this is actually what my uh, specialty is in for particularly molecular lines, I mostly just consider the, the rotational broadening or the Doppler broadening effect since it is typically the dominant component to the broadening. Um, but that, that does mean there is some uncertainty associated
0: with those other broadening processes. Yeah, and that's, you know, I I think that's a really good um, sort of example of how physics and astronomy and the physical sciences are done in general, is we say, okay, I'm going to identify all the effects that I know are at play, should be at play. And then I'm gonna make a big effort to try and quantify how much based on what I know do I expect each of these different effects to contribute and the most important thing you want to do is you want to make sure that the effects that you go out and measure that you're ascribing uh, sort of the dominant effect to Um, you know, the biggest thing that you see, because what you really wanna make sure you're not doing is you're saying, okay, I know that A, B, and C happens, and I think C is the biggest, so when I go out and measure what's there I'm measuring C without accounting for A and B because if if thermal broadening is a big deal or collisional broadening is a big deal or uh, and I, I'm assuming sometimes this comes into play or I'm actually measuring gas that's rotating around this black hole um, at a series of different radii um, I know that the gas that's in the innermost radius is going to be orbiting faster than the gas that's at a more distant radius I want to make sure that I'm not confounding myself, I want to make sure that I'm that I'm doing the best job I can to account for all of these different contributions and that the thing that I'm measuring is actually meaning the thing I think it means. Because what you're trying to do is get as close to that black hole as possible, measure the motions where they're going to have the greatest impact, and then use that information to say, okay, and that's in the end what is causing this Doppler broadening or what's causing these emission line or absorption line broadening. And that's how I can describe or conclude what the mass of the black hole actually is.
1: Yes, that's that's totally correct. And um, if, we, if we bring it to sort of my area of, of expertise and what I have been working on for the past couple of years, we specifically look at targets where we suspect that rotational or Doppler broadening is the the primary contributor to the broadening of these emission lines. So we look for galaxies that display clear, rapid rotation um, around the central black hole, where we can we can really have a, a very, actually, basic model. If you actually look at the models that we use, it's a very um, simple, what we call a thin disk model, where essentially you can imagine a disc spinning and at each sort of different radii of the disk we have different velocities like you've mentioned um, before and you know we're not really taking into account too many things that that um, that could be um, could be thought of as important so for example viscosity of the gas and the the the, the sort of the you know, fluid nature of gas dynamics that are very complicated to describe in mathematical form. We really don't consider that, that, that part of it, but our simple models can still recreate you know, fairly well what we see in the data.
0: And that's really a testament to the success that you've had. And and when I say the success that you've had, I mean that, um, you know, if I took a survey and said, like, okay, I'm going to take all the black holes that we know of in the entire universe, and I'm going to rank them by the size of their event horizons as seen from Earth, right? We go out, we look at the universe, and if I had just perfect vision and I could see somehow the event horizons of black holes themselves, which ones would be the biggest? And the biggest, the number one on that list would be the one at the center of the Milky Way. We call it Sagittarius A star. Um, And that is a black hole that is great because we have molecular clouds of gas in the galactic center that we can observe. We have individual stars that we can observe. And we have radiation that comes from the central black hole uh, in the x-ray, in radio, in in multiple different wavelengths. Uh, So we have multiple different ways of sort of getting a handle on the mass. So we can tell, are they all consistent? If we go and look at number two, that's the one at the center of the galaxy M87. For those of you who've been paying attention to the Event Horizon Telescope, uh, that was where they got that first donut-shaped image of the black hole's event horizon. And it's distorted due to general relativity, but that first famous image, that is that black hole. We also have gas and jets and emission coming from that black hole, even though it's too far away to measure individual stars. And I also wanna mention number three because we don't talk about that one very often. Uh, That is a smaller galaxy. I believe it's even less massive than the Milky Way. It's called NGC, 1277. Uh, And this is a galaxy that's smaller than the Milky Way, but has a really big black hole. It has a black hole that's many billions of solar masses. Um, And that's one that I believe it doesn't emit in many Uh, wavelengths of radiation, it isn't actively feeding on something, and we can't measure individual stars, but we still can use, I believe, the technique that you specialize in to measure uh, sort of the gas that's rotating around the black hole, and that's how we can actually measure this black hole, even though we don't have any other methods of doing so.
1: Yeah, so you mentioned three different galaxies there with uh, three different, very different black holes. Um, so I'm going to try and try and address um, them to the best of my ability. But I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, and it has been a while since I've looked at the the twelve seventy seven paper, um, I I'm fairly sure that they were using a method that I'm I wouldn't say I'm a specialist in. Um, I I know that I. That that group I believe was using stellar dynamical modeling, where they're using the orbits, the sorry, the integrated light orbits of those stars to 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 model and try and estimate the black hole mass through that way. I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that at all. Uh, I would, uh, I'm more of a I guess a gas person. I use gas dynamics, um, and I'm not entirely sure if I'm having a hard time remembering this now. But I I don't remember if there were gas Dynamical measurements from that galaxy, but to be honest, there are a lot of there are a lot of um, these measurements that it is it is hard to keep up with
0: which one was measured with which one no and i i may not be remembering correctly either i i have in my head like oh did they measure uh did they measure either x-ray or radio emissions from the uh from the disc around it but but i could be wrong on that too you know this isn't this isn't my area of specialty either um so so if i got any of that wrong i do apologize and especially out there to any researchers who work on ngc 1277 i apologize to you as well
1: yeah um i i will say one thing though that you did Mention um, earlier that um, I think it was when you were referring to the Milky Way and how there were different um, there were different kinds of of observations that we could use to try and constrain the black hole mass and the same goes for went for uh, M87 and in terms of consistency I, I I wanted to bring this up because it's an interesting point and it's a very active area of research in the field right now and it's on you know which method is is better essentially because uh, M87. Uh, up until the the black hole uh, picture, there had been, to my recollection, I think four measurements of the black hole mass through either uh, gas dynamical modeling or stellar dynamical modeling. So using stars or gas, uh, and then those measurements, which I think the first was all the way back in the, the mid 90s, right when Hubble was was still, you know, was still starting out. I, I believe the ranges on these measurements differ depending on which methods you use uh gas or stars by a factor of two to four if i'm not if I'm not mistaken though I think the eht result uh had a had a had a number for the black hole mass of about six billion which i think which i think was more consistent with what the so dynamical studies had
0: done yeah I seem to remember that uh that basically you had you had gas modeling. People uh, were getting numbers that were that were closer to around four billion, maybe three to four billion, and then you had. Um, and then you had the uh, the stellar dynamical people um, who were saying, actually, we think it's more like six or six and a half. Uh, and then EH, and I, and I think that was sort of the range. And when the Event Horizon Telescope came in, and I, I'm still so impressed with this, that you had maybe seven or eight different radio telescopes or arrays of radio telescopes all observing the same target simultaneously and they're gathering light from it and because they're all observing the same target simultaneously you can do this very long baseline interferometry technique with them where it's basically like you've got one giant telescope that has the light gathering power of just all the individual dishes added up, but it has the resolution of the distance between the dishes. So if these dishes are located all over planet Earth, you can actually get an effective telescope that acts like it has the diameter of planet Earth. Which means you can see things of resolutions that you could never see with a normal size telescope, even even the biggest telescopes we've ever built on Earth. So that sort of direct measurement to me is like, that's the decider, that's the arbiter, that's the one that can tell like, okay, this is a value that's gonna be much harder to dispute because those errors that show up, those assumptions that you have to make when you're doing any type of modeling, uh, this is just a pure measurement that doesn't have any of those errors in them, that doesn't have those uncertainties.
1: Yeah, I, I am always just impressed with VLBI because uh, that's that's the techniques that's used with the ALMA array, which participated in the Event Horizon Telescope, which is the array that all the data that I work with is, is from. And I, I, again, like actually... A funny little footnote is that the Event Horizon Telescope picture of the black hole in M87 that actually came out on my birthday last year. So it was a really nice birthday gift from EHT to to finally see a black hole on my birthday. Um, <laughs> um, but I, Wow. Yeah, it's a it was a it was a <laughs> nice treat. I woke up at five in the morning to to see the press conference live because it was on the east coast and I'm here on the west coast. But um, I will say that. While the the result, I, I I'm not trying to dispute the results because I I don't think I uh, have really looked into the methods uh, as as deeply as probably I should to, to 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 verify the result. I will say that I have heard some some dispute. Not not so sure how how strong it is as to the um as to how the EHT got their black hole mass measurement I, I don't know the entire details of this but from what I've heard it's people from mostly the general relativity community who who are claiming some some things weren't taken were not taken into consideration uh, with the HC measurement though I, I don't I cannot verify the validity of these claims and if the dispute is is you know,
0: holding any any water no, and that's and that's fair. You know, I think uh, I think we're always watching science in progress, and uh, it's important to not only uh, to understand what are the conclusions that people reached and how did they reach them, but also to recognize, you know, all of these conclusions always they're provisional, and if there's a mistake somewhere, uh, that could drastically change the conclusions. So I I don't think it's time to close the books on on any of these methods that didn't agree with the EHT's maths. Um, because whenever you have groups that don't agree on what something is, there's something to be learned. And however that shakes out, it's going to be interesting. Totally. I, I think to this day, the the dispute on
1: gas versus stars as, a, as the better tracer for black hole mass, uh, the jury's still out on what that is. Obviously, the EHT... Uh, result is favoring the the stars, but it's just one it's one target, and there are still many more black holes that need to be measured, um, once or multiple times to to really try and pin down what their masses are and see uh, which method you know ultimately is the better is the better way to go and and just um, you know, push the the boundaries of knowledge even further in in this domain.
0: So one of the things I wanna I wanna talk about because you mentioned that all of the data you work with comes from Alma is uh, I'd I'd like people to just sort of appreciate what a technological achievement Alma is that you know I talked about these these arrays of radio telescopes and most people know in the United States at least they know about the very large array the VLA located in New Mexico you know it was famously featured in the movie Contact and it was the largest Array of radio telescopes at the time. ALMA is an array of 66 large radio telescopes. Many of them are clustered together in like a central cluster, uh, and then you have a significant number of dishes that are spread out over longer and larger baselines. And these dishes, I believe, are something like 10 to 15 meters in diameter. Each. So if you would say, okay, I want to take the world's largest operational optical telescope, and I want to make 66 of them a little bit bigger in the radio, put them on a plateau in the second highest mountain range on Earth and now i want to use this to observe the universe that's what you get with alma i think without the light gathering power and the technological advances that are that have happened in the construction of alma without looking at like the power that it gives you Uh, Not only would the Event Horizon Telescope have been impossible, but a huge, huge slew of measurements that we've gotten um, to show us evidence of uh, protoplanetary disks and the gaps in them uh, that we can see from measuring that. And again people can use that same technique you use of rotational gas around these protoplanetary disks just like you would use rotating gas around black holes uh, to sort of learn about those environments as well. ALMA is a just a tremendously powerful observatory. Can you talk to us a little bit about how ALMA makes the measurements you're using possible?
1: Yeah, sure, of course. So uh, so you said that there are 66 antenna, and that's correct. There are, uh, I believe, 54 of them, uh, I believe, are 12 meters, and then 12 of them, I think, are 7 meters. And so, like you mentioned before, there's some of them that are are tightly clustered together. I believe that's the uh, that's the Morita or the Atacama Compact Array, where you have those 12 7-meter telescopes uh, uh, compactly spaced together. But then you have the other... What was it? 54 that are spread out across uh, across that plane, and um, so the way that the way that we use Alma for the purposes of black hole mass measurement is that we really take advantage of those really large, what are called baselines, so distances between uh, two telescopes. So the distances between uh, or I think the maximum distance between any two Alma telescopes at its at its most largest extended configuration is about 16 kilometers which is just which is just crazy that's so long and um we're trying so essentially that's it's trying to simulate the the you know the uh, effect of a 16 kilometer diameter telescope that's just that's insane uh, when i think about it and so we really take advantage of the long baselines and those long baselines uh increase the angular resolution that we can achieve With these telescopes now that angular resolution is really important because like you said we need to be able to resolve objects material stars gas that are that are in orbit around the central black hole but the thing is like you said these in the past is that these black holes are they're such a small component of the overall galaxy right they make up you know a fraction of a percent of the entire mass of the entire galaxy and their event horizons are they're 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 too small to see, even with you know, a big telescope like Almo or the HT. But as an observer, what we do, we typically look on scales that are closer to what is known as the sphere of influence or the radius of influence of a black hole, which is essentially the point where the black hole mass is equal to the host galaxy mass at a given radii. And really the black hole's radius or sphere of influence is where the black hole is the dominant contributor to the gravitational potential and is responsible for the majority of the motions of these objects within this radius. And so the the point of having long baselines is to be able to have good enough resolution to see either at the scale of the black hole sphere of influence or in the best case scenario you're looking deeper within the black hole sphere of influence. We can resolve Further within, so we can see the the motions of stuff uh, that the black holes are affecting, and so if we go into the very specifics of what of how, of how of how our group uses them, we we target molecular gas, cold molecular gas, in the centers of uh, giant galaxies, usually giant elliptical or lenticular galaxies, and this is an important distinction from previous gas dynamical methods, because the previous gas dynamical methods, like for M87, for example, they used ionized gas. Now, ionized gas is much hotter than molecular gas and therefore is much more turbulent, and that can add more complicated motions as opposed to regular circular rotation to the gas that is harder to model and harder to quantify in terms of the effect it has on a black hole mass measurement. Now. With Alma, since it's in the radio regime and it look it's looking at radio wavelength objects, that's where a lot of molecular gas will emit their emission lines. So for the black holes that we've we've looked at so far, we've, you, we've usually targeted carbon monoxide (CO), and CO has a has a set of transition frequencies um, across the radio spectrum that we can observe with ALMA at really high angular resolution. And in the best cases that we've had, we were able to see the motions of these CO gas disks that are in very close, close to Keplerian rotation around the black hole. So typically, as you go closer to within the black hole sphere of influence, ideally, you'll start to see what is known as a Keplerian rotation curve. And we effectively see that motion in the best cases for these for these galaxies and and based on our knowledge of course of kepler's laws newtonian mechanics we can work out what the enclosed mass and you know the black hole mass should be based
0: on the motions of these gases that's pretty fascinating so let me let me try and unpack a little bit sure. that's what you're saying is okay um look we have a black hole at the center of these galaxies, and you're specifically looking at these elliptical galaxies which I basically think of as these enormous beehives of stars where all the stars and material in it just sort of swarms around the center. It's not not in this nice, uh, smoothly rotating disk that we think about, but you have gas in there. If this gas is hot and ionized, not only are you going to have a lot of thermal broadening, but you're also going to start to get turbulent effects. And what turbulence basically means is if you were to look at an emission line and see, oh, this emission line is broadened by a certain amount, you'd still expect it to have this nice Gaussian shape where it just follows a bell curve and is equally broad on both sides. That is what you'd get if you had that nice, smooth flow. When you get turbulent flow, uh, that can mess all of that up. Things can appear broader. It can be broader on one side than the other. You can skew your tails. Um, You might not get a Gaussian shape. You might get a chi-squared or a Poisson distribution. Um, Like this this type of environment is just rife with the potential for more uncertainties and systematic errors so what you want to do and what you're able to do with Alma is you're able to say okay Enough. I'm not looking at this hot, turbulent, ionized gas. I'm looking at cold, laminar. Laminar is smooth flow. I'm looking at cold, smoothly flowing, simply rotating in these nice elliptical or circular orbits according to Kepler's laws. Even though we're close to a black hole, we're not close enough that we need to worry about. Einstein, Newton's laws, and Kepler's laws are just fine. But I still want to be within the sphere of influence of the black hole and that's where you're really making your key observations the ones that you're most confident in is the ones where you're close to the black hole that you're within the sphere of influence you have laminar flow you don't have this turbulent flow you have sort of this smooth keplerian orbit this nice uh under the influence of newtonian gravity and basically you can measure it at different radii. You can say, okay, I'm at the sphere of influence here and as I get closer and closer and closer, just like when you observe Saturn's rings, if you're here in the solar system and the inner parts of the rings are moving faster around Saturn than the outer part of the rings, this is sort of what you see for the gas, the cold molecular gas, carbon monoxide gas that you're measuring around the black holes.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good way to put it. The mo- the molecular gas is a is a very big defining feature of this of this endeavor because it does provide a lot of benefits that really plagued a lot of the older ionized gas disk uh, methods in the past. And I will say, of course, of course, the assumptions and the models that we're building, which I mentioned before, which are these sort of thin, thin razor-thin disks that are rotating in. Keplerian motions around the black hole. Of course, there are some deviations even within the molecular gas because these gas disks, of course, are not razor thin. They are, they do have some depth to them, and they have, you know, some sort of density. And there are, of course, still uh, non-gravitational forces that can affect gases um, in these disks. Right. So you can still have collisions. You can still have radial inflows and outflows, and uh, you know, those are still those are still um, very real effects that we have to try and account for. And it's not like turbulence is completely zero in these galaxies. One part of the the modeling process that we do is that we do incorporate uh, a term essentially into our equations that does try to account for uh, essentially the turbulent broadening of the 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 line profiles that we've talked about before. Uh, because obviously, with these uh, Obviously, since they have some uh, temperature, they're not exactly at zero kelvin. there is still going to be some broadening, even though that is relatively insignificant compared to the hot hotter gases
0: no, and i I imagine this is something you you worry about. i don't I don't know that you necessarily worry about it to the point where you lose sleep over it at night, but i I bet you do have to worry about like, okay, how big is this effect how do we quantify it what does it what does it sort of mean and imply and what if what if we've modeled it incorrectly how does that change our conclusions how does that change our mass estimates and you know if the whole goal of your research as you understand it is yeah it's it's to understand these environments and the physics at play but it's really to sort of say I want to measure the masses of these black holes particularly when you start looking at, you know, these distant large elliptical galaxies where maybe this method that you use is the only method you'll have to sort of, you know, pin down what these black hole masses are. Um, You know, do you, do you worry like, oh no, like, am I, are we making incorrect assumptions that are biasing our results towards either higher or lower values or otherwise inaccurate values? And what do we do about that?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely feel that. I definitely think that there are considerations I have to, I have to to think about. And I have spent the better part of the past two years first developing the formalism to to make these measurements. So a little bit on that, I've I've essentially taken what my group has done in the past, where they had they have they've had experience using the ionized gas disk method, and then they moved on to Alma in the mid. 20 teens, like in 2015, 16, and they had written this program essentially to, to uh, build these models, these thin disk models, and compare them to the data. And um, that was all written in IDL, which is the interactive data language, which a lot of, I think, um, astronomers are familiar with. But um, now there's been this transition to Python, and so I've spent the better part of the first year switching it into Python. And then I've spent the better half of the second year building a number of different um, sort of features that we can incorporate in our models. So at the very, very, very basic model, it's just a simple thin rotating disk that's in the gravitational potential of the black hole. But also, I haven't even talked about this before, but it's, it's also accounting for the gravitational potential contribution from the host galaxy itself. So, you know, stars within a given radius of the black hole, and also the mass of the gas disks themselves, because they can be massive enough that they're, they're on the order of the black hole mass at, at sufficiently far, far radii. And so there's a lot of different components into this model. So we have the simple thin disk rotating model. There's also uh, a feature where we can incorporate uh, radial inflows to see if there's any parts of the disks that are, are deviating from perfectly circular rotation. Uh, there are more complex models that my predecessors have written that, that I don't currently incorporate in my models, but what those are known as, are known as tilted ring models. So if we think of if we think of a simple thin disk where all the radii are concentric with each other, uh, you can have the case, and we've seen this in the AlMA data where you can have rings, but they're at different inclinations from each other. So it's not a perfectly thin disk, but you can have rings that are tilted, relative to one another, and they're all sort of rotating in this tilted ring geometry. And so you can really, really get into complex uh, modeling uh, procedures to try and really what and to really pin down what these masses are. And so, yes, I do. I do think about things that can that can make the model estimates incorrect. And um, I think that we're, we're fortunate that a lot of these a lot of these galaxies, or maybe not a lot, but you know, a fraction of these galaxies, we can we can stick with a simple thin disk model and get, gather meaningful results from it.
0: You know, that's that's really fascinating. And I'd like to I'd like to like uh, respond to that by by commiserating with you a little bit, because I remember when I was in graduate school, this was before Python. So that that dates me a little bit. But uh, my advisor had always programmed in Fortran and he told me, uh, but nobody does that anymore. So, you know, you need to be able to use input and output from Fortran programs, but you can program in whatever language you like. The important thing is you can write the programs you need to. And I said, great. So I learned enough Fortran that I could run Fortran programs, compile them, use them, get input-output from them, and I did my own programming in C++. And that was perfectly fine until I started my postdoc when... I was working for someone who was significantly younger than my advisor was, but all the programs were written in Fortran 77. And he was like, yep, this is where the programs are and this is what you have to program in. So I had to go learn this older programming system that nobody else was using. And it was all like, okay, how do I program this thing on how to diagonalize Fisher matrices in Fortran? So um, when you talk about how astronomers are actually moving away from idl and into python i i i very much i i welcome that i i'm jealous of that i hope that takes hold and that the entire field does that but also i am i i will encourage you you know uh Even though IDL is a pain, um, you might want to learn it because that might come in useful down the road. I, I still don't know if I would have had a better experience at my postdoc if I had learned Fortran as opposed to just saying like, well, here's the bare minimum I can get away with learning of this archaic language. Um, but but I don't know if that's true. But back to your physics and what you uh, what you sort of talked about. I love that you know when you think about it, all of these physical effects really are at play. Alma has revealed. Uh, planetary systems for example that have multiple disks or that have planets or protoplanets that are are misaligned with one another where you'll have uh, some planets or some material that makes one plane around a star and then other material disks Uh, planets, whatever, that are in a different plane around that star. So single thin plane might not always be the best model for this. When you are very, very close to a central black hole only the mass of that black hole matters. But as you move farther away and there's gas and there's stars and there's other material, that material is also gonna exert a gravitational influence. There is this wonderful theorem called Birkhoff's theorem in general relativity that is, uh, I would sort of loosely describe it as, look, when you are in orbit around something, you need to worry about all the mass interior to you, but not the mass exterior to you. And to an excellent approximation, that is good in real systems. But that also means if you are looking at something that's, I don't know, a hundred parsecs away from a central black hole versus a thousand parsecs away from a central black hole. The thing that's a thousand parsecs away isn't just going to see that central mass of the black hole. It's gonna see all the mass that basically, if you drew a sphere of a thousand parsecs around the black hole, that's in there. So you really do need to understand what's in your environment and how much of that stuff is in your environment i I learned from my first observational cosmology project that you have to be really, really careful as an observer because you need to worry about all these systematics, all these uncertainties, all these sources of error because once you publish your paper that has your figures in it, that has your uncertainties in it, that has your data points in it, no one else is going to go back through it and worry about your uncertainties and your systematic errors. People are just going to use the data that you've published and work with that. So you have to be extra careful as an observer that you make sure to quantify those things as best as possible. And that is a Herculean task.
1: That is uh, that is that is definitely going to be my life in the next couple of weeks because I'm in the process of writing up some results that uh, I've gotten with uh, some of our older Alma data and definitely going to have to think hard about how I want to present the the error analysis and, and the uncertainties and I wanted to touch upon something that you mentioned that um, that was on uh, these sort of systematic errors and a lot of the the previous, methods of measuring black hole masses prior to ALMA. So, for example, stellar dynamical modeling and gas dynamical modeling, they were plagued with a lot of, uh, of systematic uncertainties. Like for the ionized gas, for example, what we've talked before, it's highly turbulent. You can get these deviations from pure Keplerian rotation. For the stellar dynamical case, one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest systematic issues that didn't get resolved for, I want to say, at least 10 years when they started doing this was the... The inclusion of dark matter into these uh, these models these, these modeling processes because in the stellar dynamical modeling case you're essentially modeling the orbits of all the stars in a galaxy and looking at the observations the stellar kinematical observations of these stars building models to try and simulate that but these stars explore so many different orbits around the galaxy so you have some that are really close to the black hole you have some that are farther away towards the edge where you know the dark matter halo is is not an insignificant player in the motions of these objects. And so with alma we're fortunate enough that these gas disks are typically fairly small in size so we're talking about uh, I'm trying to think of the biggest one we have. I think the biggest one is less than a kiloparsec and definitely much smaller than the the half light radius of these uh, these these elliptical galaxies but these are, you know, very, very important systematics that if you don't take, take them into account, it really can cause catastrophic errors in your in your in your presentation of the results. And uh, I think, again, like, I, I think I'm very fortunate to be coming into this era of Alma now because it's, it's like I, I read about all the problems that plagued these methods in the past and how, you know, there they were sort of these concerns of how do we deal with this, how do we account for this. Uh, if only we had better observations, better kinds of tracers, more powerful telescope, whatever to to get these measurements as accurate as possible. i'm I'm sort of in the in the in the fortunate position to be a, at a time where we we have that. Now. We have Alma. we have these um, these cold discs that can bypass a lot of the problems from the past, and I'm fortunate to be uh, you know be the be one of the the people who get to to
0: make these measurements now. Yeah, it's really, it's really neat how you get to look back and see, you know, wow, I, I really am standing on the shoulders of giants. And you realize how many of these giants were for, for years or decades just sort of banging their heads up against a technological barrier that once, you know, can you imagine doing the same science that you can do with Alma where you have 66 dishes spread out? Over uh, a total area that that has a baseline of of just many, many kilometers, like like more than a dozen kilometers. Um, can you imagine trying to do that same science with a single dish that's, you know, even with Arecibo, which is like 500 meters across, like it's it's just not possible. You you can't do that same science. You can't take that same quality of measurements. You can't get that same resolution. You can't you you can't get the same quality data that you can get. And with the higher quality data. Um, you know, you have this advantage that questions that were that that puzzled theorists and observers alike for for maybe generations. Uh, you could just look with this higher resolution instrument and say, "Oh, that's the answer," like that's that's the answer right there. And so, I'm glad you have that appreciation. I I sort of look forward to circling back with you in a in a decade or two, and you're like, "Oh, well, now those questions that that I spent like." generations working on well this next generation of equipment is going to answer them immediately too.
1: Oh yeah, totally. I, I, I look forward to I look forward to the to the future when we have more powerful instruments, but also need to appreciate, you know, where I came from and where the field uh, came from and how it developed over time. And it, it really does, you know, impress me how you know how smart and how clever people back in the day were able to make do with what they had. You know, they didn't have, they didn't have all and They didn't have the kinds of, um, you know, they didn't have the type of resolution or the the precision we have now. And it, it's funny that you mentioned that you asked me, uh, if, if I could imagine doing that stuff back then, I actually was reading a, a paper from my, from my advisor, from, I, I want to say it's probably 15 to 20 years old now. And, uh, he, he was one of the, people who first got into the ionized gas dynamical modeling methods with with Hubble uh, back in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s and i remember reading at the end of the paper how he said that in the future the atacama large millimeter array will will improve these measurements and will you know focus on molecular gas and we'll do this stuff and we'll get you know better results essentially looking looking more than a decade into the future and it's so it's kind of funny to me now being being the graduate student who gets to work on that stuff with him because, you know, he, he's been looking forward for this
0: for a long time. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the dream, right, is to look ahead and to see what's on the horizon and then to get to live it and then to get to say like, oh, my, it's come to fruition and here it is. And this is what we get to learn. And that's that's what all astronomers that I know are hungry for is is the data that's out of reach today. And so if you sort of imagine, you know, what would it be like to have uh, not just a baseline of a a dozen or more kilometers, but what would it be like to have a baseline of the entire Earth? What would it be like to have light-gathering power like we don't have today? What would it be like if we had an array of radio telescopes in space or on the Moon or that we could link with telescopes on Earth and get these incredible, insane baselines that we we can't imagine what could we be able to see you know these these sound like big dreams now but but this generation's big dreams are next generations and next generations grad students are uh, reality
1: yeah no totally i mean i think i think it's just the the never ending story of how science will will never cease to to try and find ways to push the boundaries of knowledge further and i i'm i'm super excited for for you know very long baseline interferometry in space or you know very long baseline interferometry covering the entire planet because i i can imagine just so many different things that that would resolve in terms of okay how good was our estimate of this black hole mass or you know did we which was the better you know answering the question is stars or gas better um and um and probably a lot of other things i haven't even thought about yet there's probably a lot of questions that that will get answered that uh, that might just come up just due to the fact we have better technology to work with
0: yeah and when i when i think about the big picture i think you know if we had better resolution and better light gathering power, what would we be able to do? And the, the first thing that always comes to mind is I'm like, well, we'd be able to resolve smaller scales. We'd be able to see closer to the black holes. We'd be able to see more distant black holes. We'd be able to see fainter black holes. And by fainter, I don't mean the black hole itself is luminous. I mean the the matter that emits light of or absorbs light of various types around these black holes. But But basically, everything you're able to do here for the closest largest black holes for the ones that are that are nearest to you we'd be able to do all throughout the universe and that would be able to teach us things like how do black hole masses evolve or grow with time directly we wouldn't have to make these proxy measurements with huge uncertainties we'd be able to go out and measure them directly and for me this is this is basically another way to answer that question that that at some level we all get into to astronomy for which is to ask how did these structures and this universe come to be the way it is how did it what does it look like and how did it grow up and and to me the fact that we can start to answer that question and that we've come as far as we have in answering the question like that's just fuel to keep going further
1: oh man i totally agree with you and i'm glad you brought this up because there is a point that i wanted to make and i I was afraid I wouldn't get a chance to make it. And this um, has to deal with sort of the bigger picture look on on the work that I'm doing. I think we've spent a lot of time talking about um, the very specific intricate details of these black hole mass measurements and looking at all the different uncertainties for, you know, a few set of galaxies. But ultimately, what is it all for? And ultimately, it's for understanding galaxy formation and evolution, understanding how black holes can influence their host galaxies because there is there is a number of correlations, a, a number of connections that the black hole mass is related to in terms of the host galaxy parameters. So for example, there's a number of relations like the, the M-sigma relation, which is relating the black hole mass to the uh, stellar velocity dispersion of the stars and the bulge components of these galaxies. Uh, there's there's the ML relation, which relates the black hole mass to the the luminosity um, of these galaxies, and at, like these these relations are for very close by galaxies. They're very local in the sense that they're in the nearby universe universe that we can we can hope to observe because we can we can actually get down to the scales of the black hole sphere of influence in these close by galaxies. But as soon as you get to a, about 100 megaparsecs. We can't do that anymore. The the resolutions of our telescopes aren't good enough to get down to the the levels where the black hole sphere of influence is is um, is present. And so, looking ahead to the future, I think one of the questions that will definitely get addressed is, you know, how did these scaling relationships get into place, and you know, how how um, how good of a proxy for black hole mass are some of these relationships. Because I've mentioned two of them so far, and those two actually will start to disagree quite a bit at the high black hole mass end. So if you if you measure one of those quantities, whether it's the stellar velocity dispersion or the luminosity of the galaxy, and you use those correlations to predict what the black hole mass is, those two relations give different black hole masses. And the and the differences are about an order of magnitude uh, at the very, very High black hole mass end, and I think with with more powerful telescopes, we'll be able to get better black hole mass measurements. We'll be able to pin down these correlations better. See uh, like what galaxy types they apply to, and and yeah, determine when do they exactly form in place because that's one of the biggest questions right now. Because obviously we see these scaling relationships in in these nearby galaxies, and you know their light travel time is shorter than other than galaxies that are more distant, but it's sort of the, the question of, well, obviously, if, if we assume the Big Bang model is correct and we started from a single point, then the universe expanded, then there had to have been some time when these relationships were established. And it's not entirely clear when they were established. And so in terms of bigger picture, you know, um, science with these black hole mas- mass measurements, that's sort of, the, that's sort of the, the overarching theme that we're trying to uncover.
0: No, and that's particularly fascinating to me because I look at things that you call scaling relations, like how does mass scale with luminosity of the stars around it? Or how does mass scale with the velocity dispersion of the stars around it? Like as the stars swarm around in their beehive configuration, what What does that mean for the mass at the center of the black hole? This to me is like... This is science that works and we don't know why. This is what we call empirical correlations, where you say, okay, I observe this and I see as the brightness goes up like this, then that means the mass looks like that. And as the velocity dispersion changes like this, that means the mass looks like that why we don't know yet we just know this relationship we've observed it we've got empirical evidence for it as you hone in as you get better measurements as you get more data as you get improved data you start to get enough information that you can start to put these correlations on a physical footing you can start to do more than just like noticing things work this way you can start explaining for yourself and for others why do they work this way how did the universe become this way and what does it tell us about itself and that that to me is like transformative science it's really taking science from the oh, okay well I know that anytime I throw anything out of my window it accelerates down to the ground at 9.8 meters per second squared Uh, yeah that's great that's great science but that's not the entirety of science that you can build up a theory of universal gravitation that applies to everything that isn't just falling objects that you throw out your window on Earth. I feel like that's that's the leap that's ahead of us. And ALMA and what we're learning from that and from research like your own is, is really a giant step in that direction. Right. I, I totally agree because I think ALMA has the potential to
1: measure... You know, very accurate black hole masses for a large sample of galaxies that we really haven't had the opportunity to do before. Because currently, I mean, black hole mass measurements with HST started, you know, back in the mid '90s. So we've been doing this for 20 to 25 years. And out of the past 25 years, there's probably been a hundred, I think, maybe give or take a few in either direction, but about a hundred black hole mass measurements made, which sounds like a lot, but we think that ALMA can can really add to that sample, and it, and it really is important to have a statistically larger sample because these correlations we've talked about before, they have large scatter at different uh, black hole masses. So, for example, as we go up to the, the higher black hole mass N, so we're talking about billions of solar masses – and, and even bigger, those correlations start to have larger scatters. Those, those predictions from the correlations start to disagree quite a bit with the actual measured results. Now, is that a problem with the correlations themselves? Is that a problem with the measurements? Again, still questions we don't know. Um, but I think Alma will, will definitely um, add a lot more robust data points to those, those correlations.
0: No, and when you talk about going out to distances of up to 100 megaparsecs, you know, that's that's an enormous distance in the sense that you have millions of galaxies to choose from, millions of galaxies to observe in that volume. But yet it also gives us a window into how far there is still to go, because out to 100 megaparsecs is less than one one millionth of the volume of the observable universe. So there is so much more out there still to come. I know Kyle that you're not only passionate about um you know about astronomy and the practice of it and your research in particular, but you're also passionate about science communication and teaching and and can you maybe share with us uh what you do with those endeavors uh, up until now and what you'd like to do in the future? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's true.
1: I really do like teaching and I really do like sharing, you know, my love for science to as many people who want to listen. And I think it really started, if we're going to go a little bit of a ways back, uh, I initially wanted to be a a high school physics teacher, um, out of, out of college. So I, I really liked, I had really liked physics and I had a really great high school physics teacher and, I found then in college, I really liked teaching physics to to my friends and, and to people who you know were having a hard time with material in classes, and I thought I'd I'd want to be a high school physics teacher. Then I got into research, and I realized, oh, actually, I, I want to try and go down the academic route. And so, um, since I've started graduate school, I've I've had the opportunity to TA for a year, and I really liked that experience a lot. Um, I I really did like you know having uh, people finally get it with physics and and see that that light bulb go off and um, for the past couple of years I haven't had the opportunity to ta but I will actually this upcoming year so it's going to be interesting because it'll be all virtual but in the meantime since I've taken a bit of a hiatus from TAing, I've created a, a YouTube channel that is um, that is it's kind of a, a very Varied channels, very variety. Because I, I have videos of me doing sort of just textbook physics problems and explaining, you know, why this problem is is fun to do and um, deriving equations and you know, uh, stuff of that nature. I do have that kind of content, but I also have content of me just sort of showing what uh, the the life is like as a as a graduate student. At, at um, this particular stage of my career, I only recently started doing this sort of making like vlogs. Or um, I, I recently vlogged a day of me using um, a telescope uh, during the night. So I sort of sort of showed the process of how it, it, astrono- I think a lot of people when they when they think of astronomy, they think of astronomers just going to the telescope at night and it's all set up and and you know you just start watching immediately, which is so not what happens in 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 the modern day sense because it's it's a it's a process. You have to you, know, you have to plan. You know what targets you want to look at. You have to make sure your instrument is perfectly calibrated and set up um, before you're going to observe. And then um, then you actually got to go and do it, obviously. But I think there's just there's there's a lot of things that I think that you know people who aren't um, thinking about astronomy too much uh, don't know about. And I, I want to be able to sort of make that more transparent and show, oh, this is, this is how astronomers collect their data, this is how astronomers, um, you know, use a telescope. It's not looking through an eyepiece, but it's more of looking at computer screens and clicking a bunch of buttons and looking at plots and, and stuff of that nature.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I like the idea of a a channel for observers in the trench, you know, and I don't think you ever get more into the trenches than you do as a grad student when you're like, okay, like, I'm out here, I'm learning how to do this stuff on the fly. Uh, It's really, it really is a trial by fire sort of thing. And at the same time, uh, you're you're also kind of given the most undesirable tasks along with the exciting ones where it's like, okay, like, this is, this is the, uh, this is the the necessary stuff that you have to learn to get through in order to get the science that you're coveting so greatly
1: right yeah and and i think um i think again like not a, a lot of people who 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 don't think about astronomy a lot are unaware of of the challenges that come with trying to become a professional astronomer because it it really um because at least in my experience um like with my family for example i'm the only person in my family who does astronomy and you know i think a lot of people in my family just think i go out onto a porch or something with a with like you know an an eight inch mead telescope and look at the moon or something like that and uh that's really not what what i do and um and it and astronomy comes in so many different forms too i mean i i talked about vlogging my experience with at a at a particular telescope um but that's actually not my my main um project obviously because i'm doing the alma stuff and since alma is in chile i don't i don't go to chile directly and and use alma and i think um i think there's a lot of potential to teach people you know the the wider um astronomical life i guess you know and what's the different what are the different types of astronomy and how are they done and you know maybe dispel some myths that people have about the the life
0: I think that's that's a really useful service. I'll make sure to put a link to your uh, YouTube channel in the show notes, so that anyone who listens to this can uh, can just go there and check it out and see what you've done. I'd like to ask you, um, you know, looking ahead, right? You you have Alma now. You Alma, even though it's been operational for some time, uh, it's still ongoing. It there's still so much for it to look at. Um, over the next decade or so what advances are you looking forward to happening what what are you looking forward to learning over the next decade that that you think can maybe help answer uh, some of the burning questions or maybe even some of the existential questions that you might have about about black holes in the universe in general so I just want to clarify,
1: do you want me to be looking forward head specifically with ALMA or, or other advances,
0: um, like with other telescopes, for example? Uh, Complementary advances are just fine.
1: Okay. Um, man, that's that's a that's a really good question. And if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I haven't thought about it really too deeply because I've been so entrenched with with um, my own research. And I, I, I think so hard about, you know... I've been working hard on these two galaxies, so I've really thought about these two specific galaxies for a long time. Um, but there is one actually. I will mention one galaxy in particular. Actually, I don't want to give it give it out because I, I want to be able to one I want to be the one who can do it and, and not give anyone free science to do.
0: No, no, no. Um, don't give us free science. Just tell us there is a galaxy out there.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there is a galaxy out there that this is known that my advisor had looked at in the past and had attempted to measure the black hole mass of using the old ionized gas disk method. And I, I, I don't know if it actually, I don't know if it has a stellar dynamical measurement to go with it, but I know for a fact my advisor had measured it a couple of decades ago, and we now have ALMA data for this galaxy, and it looks ripe for a, uh, a, a mass measurement. And I'm really excited to try and sort of you know, not maybe close the book, but, you know, write another chapter in the history of this galaxy's, um, you know, uh, mass measurement, black hole mass measurement saga, and see, you know, compare with what my advisor had done and see what tw- 20 plus years of advancements have done to the field. So that's one very, very specific um, uh, advancement that I'm hoping for. Um, obviously, with with other telescopes, I think James Webb... Is going to be uh, revolutionary. I haven't really thought about what science can be done with with it in terms of how it can help uh, my research. But I, I mean, having what a six and a half meter telescope out at the second Lagrange point. I mean, yeah, I it, it just boggles my mind what we're going to see because Hubble was our Hubble has already just completely revolutionized astronomy. But I. I can't even begin to imagine what James Webb will do, and hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to do. I mean, it hasn't it hasn't launched yet, so I mean, you know, fingers crossed, of course.
0: Um, no, and we're we're all hoping for a safe and on time launch. I think uh, I think if all things go as well, then in about a year on Halloween, we'll all be uh, we'll all be very very excited and holding our breath and just waiting for you know. Oh, if this is successful, like it is. It's you know, we talked earlier about learning what the universe looks like and learning how the universe grew up. And I I'm a I'm firmly in the camp that it was really Hubble that taught us what the universe looked like. And I think it's gonna be James Webb that really taught teaches us how the universe itself grows up. Um and, you know, I think I think this is a, a key thing that that we need to invest in is looking at the universe in all of these different wavelengths of light to better precisions than we've ever seen it before, because that's how you push the frontiers. That's how you discover what's out there in the great unknown. Right. And
1: I think that with James Webb and then the next class of really large telescopes ground based telescopes um, coming in the next decade or so uh it 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 really is hard to put into words you know where to where to begin to look i think cuz i think every subset of astronomy like i i work in a very very um specific niche area in astronomy and obviously these advancements are they're going to help us you know un- understand for example you know what is the what is the molecular gas content really like in these galaxies? What are you know we'll we'll be able to resolve stellar orbits better and get a better handle on you know how big how big of a you know component the stars play in um, you know in in the gravitational potential of these galaxies and that we can incorporate that and you know make better and more robust models and specifically what I do, um, but you know i think there's there's going to be a lot of excitement in, in other fields like for example you were talking about protoplanetary disks before and protostars and how alma is already you know revolutionizing that and i think i think just the entirety of astronomy is just going to benefit from from these these new these new telescopes and i, I it's like i i feel like i'm a prisoner of the moment in the sense that i'm so focused on what i'm specifically doing that i can't even really begin to appreciate, you know, what the next 10, 15, 20 years are, are going to have in store for me.
0: Well, I I would encourage you and, and everyone to, uh, you know, by all means, like, focus on the things that need to get done focus on the things that are right in front of you but every once in a while you know and it's weird to say this even to an astronomer uh don't forget to look up don't forget to look around and you know take a view of the whole full landscape of what's out there because Um, you know, once you start learning about it, it's really fascinating how, you know, as far as you go, I feel like we're all like these, uh, we're all like these sharp rapiers that, that throw out a thrust and we're like, this is our scientific research and we're going to make a dent in the frontier and who knows how deep that dent'll go, but also, um, there are thousands and thousands of scientists in every field doing this all over the world and we're all thrusting our our rapiers and our sabers and our ep- ep- epes and our whatever sword we have uh, at whatever frontier we're poking at and there are new things being discovered and new, new things being revealed all the time. Um, I can't get enough of it, and I, I imagine that uh, every time you look up, you worry about getting distracted from your own thing because of how many exciting things there are out there going on all the time.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I, I definitely, um, I'm just impressed, so impressed when I'm, I'm reading either, you know, popular science articles or even reading stuff on, like, the archive where, you know, professional preprints are, are, are put up. It, it's just amazing to me how, how much how much good astronomy is being done and, and the discoveries that are being made. I mean, I think, I mean, with, I, I feel, you know, I, I thought about this a little bit in terms of not really looking forward but looking back and then and, and thinking, man, I feel really lucky to be living through this time because we, you know, we had the LIGO discovery about four years ago now. Uh, we have the Event Horizon Telescope uh, image coming out just last year. And it's stuff like that where, um, for example, I actually had done had a project in college before the gravitational wave discovery was was announced. And it was on gravitational waves and how they had yet to be seen and how um, we hope to see them in the future with LIGO. And then it ended up getting found about a year later. And it's just those kinds of things where I, I don't even... I don't know what's currently possible yet until it's just right in front of my, until it's just sort of shown to me in my front of my face like yep it's possible we, we found it and yeah <laughs> I don't know how else to you know that.
0: I mean, I think, I think that's really remarkable because, you know, I would say those two discoveries you have, I, I, w- I would say along with the discovery of the Higgs boson, those were the three biggest discoveries of the last decade, the three biggest scientific breakthroughs. And, uh, you know, who knows what we're going to find here in the 2020s. Um, but uh but you know i'm i'm really looking forward as well to seeing what what the future and the present reveals to us because i i do know that as long as we have people out there um doing their best using cutting edge tools to look at the universe as we've never viewed it before uh we have a chance we have a chance of not only finding what's out there in the great unknown but finding something surprising and to me that's that's where the greatest advances of all really come from. Kyle, I, I really want to thank you for joining us and for a fascinating conversation. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with?
1: Uh, yeah, so I just first want to say, you know, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It was a really enjoyable experience. I felt like I I learned a lot and made me uh, think a lot more about the universe than I've had the chance to in the past couple of months. And I guess if I had to say anything to the audience, I'd I'd just say, you know, keep being curious and follow, you know, kind of please, right, but follow your dreams because, you know, I think that um, anything worth doing is going to be really hard. And for me, it has been trying to become, you know, the the best astronomer that I can possibly be. And I think that um, I've been blessed to have the support of many people and, have the opportunity to study this stuff, and I think we need to all take a moment and appreciate um, just the the amazing wonders of the entire universe because it is just uh, a huge, huge landscape for um, potential discovery and and innovation, really. And uh, I really hope to, I really hope to see more people get involved and
0: and share their love with the universe as well. Well, thank you for those wise and humble words. Uh, That was Kyle Cavasares, and uh, this is the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in, and I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters whose generous donations make this podcast possible. I'd like to personally thank everyone who donates at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go to... Chad Marler, Jeffrey David Maricini, Samir Kumar, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Charles Buchanan, Chris Jakutas, Chris Shaw, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyen, Pavel Zuzelski, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Fransen, Punitive Expedition, Rob Hansen, Stefan Bernegger, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Danny, Denier, Flo, Frank, Hellbender, Igor Mitrofanov, Jens Kroger, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Laird Whitehill, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojcciak, Randall Slimak, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Sergei Gordienko, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andrew Jason, Arnulf Zepeda, Benhead, Chuck Dannen. Dana Bridges, Darren Redford, David Taschioni, Dick Pills, Fraser Kane, Gabrielle Nader, Glenn McDavid, Hannah Kahn, Inga Strumke, James Nance, James Page, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Jeff Reneke, Kelly Kudrick, Ken Blackman, Lalina Menenti. Mark Langston, Michael Lewis, Mike, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rousheen Shaw, Sam Serzakian, Steve Schaber, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Blair, Brainwise, Chris Hilly, and Mark Bloor. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time back here for more Starts with a Bang.